Okay. Hey, welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. Uh, I get the honor of teaching from the Word of God today. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, would you grab it and turn to John chapter 12? If you don't have a copy, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Somewhere near, you can grab it. You can also Google John chapter 12. If you do use one of these Bibles in the seats, uh, we're going to be on page 955. 955. And uh, today we get to look at a really cool passage, uh, and I saw something this week that I'd never seen before in reading this passage. So uh, we spent the last several weeks in chapter 11 of John. We're walking chapter by chapter through the book of John. John uh, was one of the 12 disciples. He's on the inner circle of Jesus' ministry team and got to know Jesus really well and, and decided at the end of his life to record for us an account of who Jesus was, and, and he gives us some stories that the other Gospels don't give us, and, and so he's writing probably two decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written their accounts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and so John comes in, and he's trying to kind of fill in the gaps, and you can sort of imagine people asking John, so John, what exactly do you believe. And so John writes this for those people. And so he's assuming that we know some of the stories. And so he writes uh, some, new, some new stories, but also the stories that he tells us about that the other gospels tell us about. Sometimes he tells them from a slightly different perspective or gives us different details. And we're actually going to see that today. We're going to focus on the first nine verses of chapter 12. I'll read here in a second the whole um, account because uh, there's sort of this bigger Advent theme that we want to talk about that we'll be hitting the next uh, three weeks of Advent and then of course Christmas Eve, um, the fourth week of Advent as we study the coming of Jesus. So um, I want you to pay attention to that. I want you to know that about John, that it doesn't mean he's telling a different story, but he's giving us some details because he assumes that we know the other details from the other Gospels. And so if you don't know those details, uh, I'll fill you in on those as we go. But it's super exciting uh, what we saw as we looked at this together this week um, in our staff meeting and, and uh, really fun. So today we're going to focus on um, specifically verses 1 to 9, but, uh, and what we'll see here is uh, Mary of Bethany, who's the sister of Lazarus, who we've been talking about, and Jesus is good friends with M uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and, and raises Lazarus from the dead uh, just in chapter 11, because he had died of a sickness, and Jesus comes in and, and reveals and gives this sixth sign in the book of John, and now they're throwing a party uh, because Jesus is back in town to celebrate who Jesus is, and so Mary is going to take a very expensive uh, perfume ointment, nard is what the Bible calls it, so if you saw the email, you said, why is the word nard in a subject line that's from the text? That's from the text. <clears throat> so we're going to redeem the word nard for you, and uh, amongst other things today. And so she gives this and, and anoints Jesus' feet. And so it's this beautiful picture. And it's coming, this is important to know in the context of the whole story, it's coming just a week before Jesus is arrested and crucified. So you've you got to understand, John wants to draw this story to your attention because something unexpected is about to happen. If you read the Bible as, as literature, you have to try to see how the things happen in the order that they happen to understand what John is trying to do. So as he does that, or, or, or as he shows us this story and the details he gives us in this story, even though this wouldn't have been the first time they'd heard about this anointing of Jesus just before his death, he's going to pull out some unique things. And <clears throat> What's interesting we saw is that there seems to be, in the whole chapter, some subtle parallels to the birth story of Jesus that we have in Matthew and Luke. So throughout Advent, we're going to be highlighting some of these parallels between them. And it's so interesting because John, again, is doing something different than the other Gospels. He's telling a story with a different arc, but he does... It almost seems like he wants us to be thinking about the first advent of Jesus, which we call the nativity, right? The birth scene of Jesus. So uh, I'm going to read to you, in case you're unfamiliar with those, or it's been a while, or you only have the 
commercialized version of those. I'm going to read to you the scene that's painted for us by Luke and Matthew about the nativity, which means the birth account of Jesus as he came into the world. And then we're going to say, why does John almost seem to draw some of these details out of this uh, last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion? Why does he draw those birth nativity pictures back into our mind? Is it, is it intentional? I, th- I think it might be. I, don't, I, don't, I'm, I can't say for sure, but it seems too much of a coincidence, okay? So, so that's where I want to start. I want to start at looking at some of these similarities. So stick with me. I'm going to read through Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. We'll have it on the screen. You could turn there if you wanted to, but I'm going to read it to you as well, okay? So I'm going to just go for it, okay? So this is this is Matthew, another one of the gospel writers, painting the picture of the time of Jesus' birth. So Jesus, he says, Matthew 2, 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea. This happened while Herod was king of Judea. After Jesus' birth, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the child who has been born to be king of the Jews? So, hear all this king language. We saw a star, or his star, when it rose. There was a, there was a, there was a phenomenon in the sky that they had been waiting for, that there had been prophecy about, and then they saw it, and so they came on a long journey, and now they've arrived in Jerusalem. We've come to worship him, they said. When Herod, King Herod, heard about it, he was very upset. Very upset. He's very upset. Why, why is he upset? Everyone in Jerusalem was troubled too. So Herod called together all the chief priests of the people. He also called the teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. Now, again, I'm not preaching on Matthew 2, but it's just so funny that the king, the king of the Jews, doesn't know about these prophecies about where the messianic king would be born. He's not a student of scripture. He's a law unto himself. Probably why he's upset that there's another king coming. In Bethlehem in Judea, they told him, this is what the prophet has written. The prophet wrote, this is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are certainly not the least important among the towns of Judah. A ruler will come out of you. He will rule my people Israel like a shepherd. Then Herod, secretly, having heard about this prophecy, called for the wise men who had come from the east. They called him into his chambers. He found out from them exactly what the star, when the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me. Then I can go and worship him too. Obviously, he has other intentions. After the wise men had listened to the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them. It finally stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The wise men went to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a perfume, an ointment. But God warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod because his intentions were bad. If you don't know the story, Herod sends his men to go kill this baby. So they return to their country on a different road. Okay, so that's Matthew 2. And the people would have heard about these stories already, the people that John was writing to. So now you've heard as well about Jesus being born, about these wise men, these aristocrats, these uh, very, very uh, wealthy and powerful men coming and bowing before a manger, a feeding trough, to worship a baby who had just been born. Interesting. Luke tells us this, Luke chapter 2. 
It says this, In those days a decree went out to see, uh, from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So where is your town of origin? Um, so you have to know your ancestry, and so you would go back to that town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, which is actually in the north. They always say go up because he's going up into the hill country of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem was very close to Jerusalem, and so he's going up. And he went to register in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family line of David, and the Messianic king was said to have to come through the line of David. That's predicted in the Hebrew scriptures over and over again. So he went to be registered among, uh, along with Mary, who he was engaged to, and she was pregnant, and if you don't know that story, not by Joseph, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. She became pregnant with God's very own son. So while they were there, they, there came a time for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no guest room available for them, for the king. Okay. So in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them. So now we have a new scene of angels out in, in, in nature, and all of a sudden an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, terrified. They've never seen things like this, heard things like this, but the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that, that, that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger, a feeding trough. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, for the Lord has made this known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at, at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all of these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, and which, they, uh, which just was just what they had been told. So, these are the two main accounts we have of the where we get the nativity of Jesus' birth. Okay, so now. <laughs> Do we have enough scripture yet? The answer is no, never enough scripture. So let's read what John says now, clearly not at the birth of the baby Jesus, but at the birth, you might say, of the Passion Week, the week where Jesus goes and gives his life. Let's see what John says. Are you ready? So John, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. They threw a party. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of perfume. This is Lazarus' sister Mary. Took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, John gives us all these, you know, people know about this Judas, this is the one. He said, why, have, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A, a denarii, a 300 would be like a year's wages for an average worker. So this is like a really expensive uh, bottle of nard. And he's like, why didn't we sell it and give it to the poor? Now John gives us this editorial note. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor so much, but because he was a thief. 
and he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So Jesus answered them, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. This is the day of my burial. She's kept it for this moment. For you will always have the poor with you, Jesus said, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead. But the chief priests and had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So people coming from Jerusalem... Bethany is about the same distance from Jerusalem as Bethlehem is. Being sent from the chief priest to go kill people. Because people were deserting their authority and following and believing in Jesus' authority. So the next day when the large crowd had come to the festival, this is verse 12, and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it was written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So again, Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament Hebrew prophecy. His disciples did not understand these things at first, However, when Jesus was glorified, that is, crucified and risen, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. I love that quote because even in the moment, they're not sure why Jesus is riding into town on a donkey and everyone's singing, the king of Israel is here. They didn't quite catch it in the moment, but that's okay. Verse 17, Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him on the road as he was coming into Jerusalem, because they had heard that he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We failed. Everyone's turning to him, is what these Pharisees, these Jerusalem elites, the ones with all the power, were saying. Now here's... Really interesting, and, and we'll get into the, We won't go into it. I just want to show you it so you get excited about what we're doing during Advent. Paul, uh, John uses this word that he has never used in his gospel, and he could have said it so many other ways, but he specifically says, verse 20, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. What is he, he's never used that term, the Greeks. He'll say Gentiles, or, but he, he says Greeks. He wants to say people from the country of Greece. Where is Greece? Far off. And people with enough money to travel all the way to Jerusalem have come. The Greeks have even come to worship at the festival. And so they came to Philip, that's one of Jesus' disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and requested of him, "Uh, excuse me, sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. He's talking, what is he talking about? Uh, Don't worry, Ryan, I'll explain this to you in a couple weeks. And the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And the crowd standing there, think of the shepherds, the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was like thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus responded, this voice came not for you, but not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, I am lifted up. And he's talking about his cross. And the, 
from the earth, and I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Okay, a lot of scripture. Do you see any similarities between the nativity of his birth and this scene that John is painting for us in chapter 12? Do you see any similarities? Of course, you know it's a rhetorical question, and (laughs) of course, I see some similarities. Well, we've got a Mary. (laughs) That's uh, clear. There's always a Mary, and that's how we can trust the Bible, because nobody has different names. Like, why are there so many Marys? Which Mary are we talking about? We've got a Mary, but that's not the most important thing. We've got people falling to their knees in worship of Jesus. We'll see that. Mary will fall to her knees in the worship of Jesus. We've got expensive gifts of, of, of massive value being laid at Jesus' feet, both at his birth and now at the beginning of the Passion Week. And specifically, we have this myrrh or perfume, this, this ointment, as one of those gifts. We've also got people wanting to kill Jesus for fear of losing their power, both at his birth as a baby and at the birth of Passion Week. And we've got people recognizing Jesus as the rightful king. All types of people. Upper class people, lower class people, everyone seems to want to, to, to come and worship this king. We've even got people coming from far off lands. Some from the east, now we've got people from the west, people coming long distances to see this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Why would people come from all over at his birth and also at the birth of his death to come see this Jesus? What's going on? This is not a normal person. And then, of course, we've got farm animals. Not sure that's a strong connection, but I just want to go donkeys. We got, I, just, I love that. It's always farm animals. If you're, a, if you're from the farm country, we love you. We don't understand you. <laughs> As city people, we don't know what you go through, but we know Jesus did. So, so because of these connections that we see, and we'll talk more about them as, as Advent goes on, we're wanting to call this at little mini Advent series, even though we're going through the book, book of John, we want to call this ad, these Advent sermons the Nativity of Death. Yikes, that's not uplifting. Or is it? The nativity of death. Man, I like Christmas. I like little baby Jesus. I like the hope that that shares with me. I mean, John liked that too. But John's like, guys, that's not actually why Jesus came. He came to die. And I want you to see that the nativity of his death is as important as the nativity of his birth. Don't miss it, people. Don't miss it, John says. The whole reason he came is to give his life. People worship him at his birth, and they're worshiping him right before he dies. So we're calling this little Advent sermon series the nativity of his death. Are you excited yet? So let's focus on the first nine verses today, and we're going to look at this extravagant gift that Mary of Bethany gives to her friend, her Savior, who she believes to be the Messiah, who she believes to be her king, this, this gift, this beautiful gift, just like those wise men came and gave those gifts to the infant Jesus. So let's read it. Six days before the Passover, this is verse 1, chapter 12, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one that Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving, and Mary was one of those, or Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. So then Mary just shows up out of the blue, doesn't seem to ask Jesus. I love that about the story. I mean, in, in a culture where women were not always invited to the table, she has such confidence in her relationship and her friendship with Jesus, who she's about to anoint as the king, who she believes is God in the flesh, that she goes straight up, doesn't ask anybody's permission, not even Jesus, and just starts bathing him with oil. Now, I think she's not only bathing his feet, 
But in the other accounts of the same story, it says she anointed his head. And John wants us, yeah, he's like, I know you know about the head, but she also anointed his feet. I think that's what's going on here. If you're a student of scripture and you're wondering, well, I thought there's other places where it says, I think both probably happened, but John wants us to say, no, she gets it right and she bows on her knees in utter respect and humility before her king and she bathes his feet in ointment. In nard, also known as spike nard. Does anybody know what spike nard is? Okay, sp- I had to look this up. Spike nard is a class of aromatic amber-colored uh, essential oils derived from the flowering plant in the honeysuckle family, which grows in the Himalayas of Nepal, China, and India. So you can imagine why it's expensive. Now the Romans would love to bring this stuff in, and but Mary had this probably the most expensive thing that she owned. We don't know exactly her socioeconomic status, but even if she wasn't a peasant, this probably was the most expensive thing that she owned. It was this, this very rare, thick ointment that was used for anointing someone's head, and she not only anoints Jesus' head, but his feet. Perhaps even... It was a part of Mary's wedding dowry. They'd been saving it as a household so that when a suitor came along, perhaps, we don't know for sure, but this would have been something that would have been a part of the gift that they would have given to the groom's family as part of the wedding tradition of the day. And so she gives this instead to Jesus. What a gift. What an amazing gift. A truly incredible gift. And we can't even in our day and age imagine the value that was attached to this gift. And it was so personal to Mary. It was not of secondary importance. It was her first fruits. It was like Abel's gift in Genesis 4. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, these brothers ended up clashing because God received Abel's gift as pure and good and of the first fruits. And Cain, the older brother, brings, he does bring an offering, he does bring a gift, but it's of secondary importance. It's not his first fruit. And so God rejects Cain's gift and is not pleased by it. And so Cain, in his anger and his rage and his jealousy, murders his brother. The first murder recorded for us in human history. And it's all around the giving of a gift to God. I don't know. I'm just wondering if John wants to remind us why does he bring up Judas Iscariot and why does he tell us Judas was a thief and why does he maybe he's saying don't forget that Judas has a lot of that cane in him. Judas is corrupted by that same type of sin that corrupted Cain that led to death. The death of a pure and righteous son of God. The second thing to note here is that this is the kind of gift that was fit for a king, not a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter before he started his ministry. But this is the kind of gift you'd give a king. What's going on here? And we noted the, parable, or the, the parallels to the nativity story. And so the question is, is Jesus more than a carpenter? It's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Is he more than a carpenter? Why would someone give him such a gift? I think Mary knows that Jesus is more than a carpenter that he is the rightful king, that he is the Messiah, the Savior that had been awaited by the Hebrew people. So, so she knows he is the correct object of her devotion and her gift-giving. And so to her, she doesn't hesitate. She sees an opportunity to give her best gift to the best object of that gift. What a personal declaration this was for her. When we give our gifts to God, when we give our gifts to Jesus Christ, we are declaring that he is the most worthy object of those gifts. So the gifts that you give to him will tell the world what you think of him. If he's just a carpenter, then give him a gift due for a carpenter. If he's more than a carpenter, give him a gift that's due to someone more than a carpenter. If he's a king, give him the gift that's that's due to a king. Mary sees it. 
And so her act is both a personal declaration of who she believes Jesus to be, but she also, maybe even unbeknownst to her, does this historical act of greatest significance where she anoints Jesus as the king. And then Jesus will come and say, you don't even know, it's not even just that, but you've anointed me for my burial. Again, she probably in the moment doesn't even know what he's fully saying to her, right? She doesn't know that he's about to die in a week's time. And so when he says to her, she's done a good thing, she's anointed me for my burial. Like God has given her this gift for this moment so that she might give it to me and anoint me for my burial. It's an amazing amazing thing that Mary gets to be a part of. Now later on in, or sorry, not later on, but in the other Gospels, what we see Jesus saying around this same story is that when, when, Mary, when, when the gift giver is questioned by others about why would you give such a gift, the, the, the gift, or Jesus will say, no, she's done the most amazing thing, and wherever the gospel is proclaimed, people will know about her gift. Was Jesus right? Well, Jesus is always right. And 2,000 years later, on the, on the other side of an ocean or two, we're talking about Mary's gift. How interesting is that? Coincidence, maybe, or maybe Jesus knows the beginning from the end. So what a gift it is. And... It's not just what she gives, but how she gives it that John wants to highlight. That she is down on, a, on her knees, wiping it on the feet of Jesus, which would have been the lowliest of tasks. Washing someone's feet was reserved only for the servants. It wasn't fit for anyone not in the servant class. And so for her to be on her, on her knees, washing his feet with her hair, putting the ointment on his feet with her hair would have been an ultimate act of humility, an ultimate act of knowing who she is versus who he is. And, uh, of course, we'll see in just a few days, Jesus will get on his knees and wash his disciples' feet again, showing what kind of king he is. But Mary does it first here and profoundly proclaims her status versus Jesus' status in the way she gives this gift. That's why John wants us to, wants to highlight that part of the anointing. Okay. Now, this last piece of this, how Mary puts on the ointment is, I think, fairly profound too. She uses her hair. Okay, so we don't understand that. It just seems kind of like a weird detail, but to let her hair down one shows the intimate friendship and relationship she has with Jesus. So she feels comfortable to do that, but she also, it's an act of intimacy of, again, knowing who she is in comparison to her Messiah, her Christ. And so she uses her hair to put the ointment on. And, and there's an irony in this that I want to point out because I, I was thinking about this, how beautiful this is, because this is the way it works in, real, in, in, in life now as well. Because she very intimately and humbly uses her own hair with this, this amazing smelling perfume, this ointment, and I don't think this is why she did it, I'm just saying this is just what happens when you bow and kneel and serve your King Jesus. Guess who also walked away from that experience smelling a bit like heaven? Mary, because she used her hair because she used everything that God had given her to glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, the rightful King. And the same thing happens for us. This weird thing happens is when you get down in the dirt, in the mission of Jesus, in the bringing of Him praise and worship, and, and elevating His name in the world, the strange thing happens to you. You walk away with a bit of shine. You start to smell like heaven. And, and scripture talks about this. And that smell is distinct and unique and one of a kind. And, and to some people, it will repulse them because they've never smelled anything like that before. But to other people, it will draw them in and they'll recognize that's the kind of smell I've always been longing for. 
And I just love that about this story. Mary using everything that she is to worship and glorify Jesus. And, and because of it, she walks away smelling like heaven. That is true of us as well. When we give our greatest gifts to God, it changes us. And it changes us for the better. Okay. So, she gives this great gift. But, just like what might happen for many of us today, I know it's happened to me, when we give an extravagant gift to the Lord, some people will question our sanity. They will question our gift giving. They will say, is that appropriate? Is that the best use of your gifts? Is that all you could have done with that? And that's exactly what happens to Mary. So let's read the passage. Verse 4. As her devotion to Christ is mocked, then one of, the, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who we all know was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John gives us these editorial notes. Now remember when Mary was going through this, she didn't know that Judas was this kind of guy. But John wants us to remember who we're talking about here. He says he didn't say this because he cared particularly much about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was in charge of the money bag and he would steal part of it, any part of it that was put in. So forget for a second that Judas is the thief. The main thing I want you to see is that Judas, one of the 12 disciples who would have in that scenario had some, you know, some sway is mocking her and challenging her and saying, what are you doing giving such a gift like that? You could have done something way more important with that gift. That's the second thing I want to talk about. Um, Don't be too hard. I mean, there's plenty of reasons to be hard on Judas. And of course, John is being really hard on Judas. And throughout his gospel, he takes some shots at Judas. But like when this story is told in Matthew... Um, It says all the disciples questioned her about why is she giving this expensive gift and not to the poor. And Jesus says the same thing in that account. The poor will always be with you, but I won't. So she's done a good thing. And so so I I don't think, you know, Judas, John likes to highlight Judas and give us some, and you know what he's about to do because you already know the story. But all the disciples were wondering and doubting if this was a good use of this gift. And so I want to ask you, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had someone try to put a seed of doubt into your mind about the gifts that you're giving to God? Has anyone ever questioned, maybe you're doing this the wrong way? Has anyone maybe said, this is foolish or a waste of your life to give these gifts to Jesus? Have you had that? I've had that. I've had that. Mary's had that. You're not alone. I I believe that there are many of my friends today who knew me growing up as a young pup. Dave was full of potential. Dave had all this future ahead of him. And I think they honestly believe I'm wasting my life giving it to what I'm doing. I, I, I believe it with all my heart that they think it's a waste. They see the gifts that, that I have and they say, man, I wonder what else he could have done with that. Does anybody know that feeling? Maybe you have a parent or a friend who sees, what, what are you wasting your Sunday mornings for? What are you wasting your Wednesday nights for? What are, you, what are you giving your finances to this church thing, this mission of God? What are you doing? You could have done so much more with your life. You could have done so much more with that. What are you doing? Imagine what you could have seen, where you could have been. Imagine your Instagram if you hadn't given these foolish gifts to the Lord. I'm dead serious. People think that about you. If they don't say it to you, they think it about you. But you're not alone. Mary gives the greatest of gifts. And her supposedly best friends, those who are also following Jesus, question and put a seed of doubt in her mind. Are you sure that was the right use of that gift? This brings us to the second part of this. This is an interesting one. Who's right? Is Mary right or is Judas right? 
or even in the other account of this in Matthew, are the disciples right? Now, Jesus obviously gives us the answer to the debate. Mary's right, and she will be celebrated, and we're celebrating her today. But in the moment, you don't know. And you've got to read this as such. Maybe Judas is right. Maybe we should have sold this and given it to the poor. I mean, this kind of debate is happening all the time in churches all over this country, all over this city, all over the world, inside churches, and definitely happening outside the church. What are they doing wasting all that money when they could have just given it to the poor? So who's right? Now, Jesus says, you'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. And we know in that specific context, he's talking about he's about to go and die. We know that now. They might not have known it exactly then. But he says she's done a beautiful thing. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is is not saying, and he would never say, that we have no responsibility to care for those in need. I mean, he makes it clear time and time again that that is part of what it means to love the Lord. So don't, don't misunderstand. He's not just giving you an out and saying you don't have to ever care for the poor or the needy. That is definitely not the Jesus way. But he is highlighting something that I think is so important that the way you love the poor or the motivation by which you love the poor is of ultimate importance more so than just helping the poor. So uh, I've got a quote up here for you from a guy named Edward Clink, which is one of the theologians, commentators that uh, I like to read in studying John. He says this. He says, We give to others because they are in need, We give to Jesus because we are in need. What do you think about that? (laughs) Amen. Here's what I think he means. If you get to your giving to them because they have need, before you come on your knees and bow before the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe, and say, I'm in need, the giving to them will be tainted in a way that that is not received by God as a beautiful fragrance. That's a hard truth. When we come first and say, I am in need, God, give me what I need, which is the only thing, and he is the only one that can give it, which is forgiveness of your sin, new life in the spirit. When we come to him in need, then we look and we see other needs, then that act of seeing what they need and giving to that becomes an act of praise to the one who gave us what we need. Is that making sense? This is a big idea. But if we fail to see our need for God's help first, and that he gave the help that we exactly needed, then even our greatest gifts to others become tainted by the pride of life. Your giving... No matter how great it is, even how sacrificial it is, if it's not done in light of his gift, will be a gift of pride, whether you're aware of it or not. You're going to have to wrestle with that one. It's okay to say, I don't know if that's true, Dave, but you've got to wrestle with that. If we see our need first and then help by receiving from God in Christ the gift that he's given, then our gifts become a wonderful reverberation of that gift of grace which we receive from our Redeemer. And that's beautiful. And that's what Jesus wants us to be about. But there is no world in which you can give that and not receive this and it's pleasing to the Lord. So we must be careful in our zeal to be like God, because he's the great giver. So yeah, but I just want to be like God. In our zeal to be like God, that we forget that we are not God. That's, that's nuanced, right? God says, I've created you in my image, I want you to be like me, but also just don't forget, you're not me. Okay? So God does not have need. He's the only one being in the universe without need. He starts the giving train, and the giving train gets passed on and on. But if we think we can just start our own giving train, then we think we are God, and that is the root sin that made humanity fall. 
Go read Genesis. Yes, you are like him, and you are given the kind of love he has, but it has to be sourced from him because you are not him, you're just like him. These are big ideas. You might have to listen to this sermon a second time, and I recommend 1.5 speed. Okay. Okay, so... In our, so we're being careful. Now, I do, I do just want to say, there is a type of person in this room that's really good at giving. It's like your love language is giving gifts. You, in particular, need to be very careful, if that's you, that you are constantly falling at your knees and receiving from Jesus, receiving from the Lord, so that your gifts don't become tainted and the pride of life doesn't seep in. Okay, so... One thing I've found is people that are really good at giving gifts tend to really struggle receiving gifts. Raise your hand in your heart if that's you. You don't have to do it out loud, but do you str- like are you really good at giving gifts but you struggle to receive gifts? Be careful. Spend more time practicing receiving gifts, not just from God but from others as a way to soften your heart so that when you give gifts, you make sure that gift is given out of a reverberation of God's gift, a response to his gift, and not just you starting your own giving train. Okay, so one of the, the ways that this was pictured as I was studying uh, was jamming on the difference of two words. So raise your hand if you think philanthropy is a good thing. Like this, this time not in your heart, but raise your hand. Think philanthropy is a good thing. Don't you know I'm tricking you? Okay, so philanthropy, is it a good thing? Or versus theophilia. Theophilia. So I've got a slide for this. Throw that up there, Urson. Okay, so philanthropy, you see this is the Greek word phila for love. So philanthropy is love for humanity versus, sorry, typo there, versus theophilia, which is love for God. Are you sure that you have theophilia or do you have philanthropy? Say, I don't know what's wrong with philanthropy. Well, it's what I've been trying to say. If your philanthropy isn't as a response to God's philanthropy, then it is prideful philanthropy. If your philanthropy is in response to God's philanthropy because he has loved you and met you in your need, then it is theophilia. But this is tough, because we celebrate philanthropy in our culture. But philanthropy, apart from, and not underneath the covering of theophilia, becomes the pride of life. Just the way it goes. But rightly done, because God is the only true philanthropist, and his love for humanity then flows through his people, but he is the true philanthropist, If we allow him to love us first and our theophilia, our love for him, leads us into love for humanity, then it is good because it is part of our love for God. Is that slightly clear? It doesn't need to be fully clear, but that's the thing to watch out. And Judas wanted philanthropy apart from Jesus. See, he didn't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, was this a good gift that she gave to you? He just makes a judgment on his own. She's wrong. He's making himself God. And he will sell out his savior, his rabbi, his for 30 pieces of silver. And when he comes to realize what he's done, he can't live with it and he takes his own life. It's not wrong for him to be thinking about the poor. But to not filter that thinking about the poor through God's Philanthropy is to miss the train altogether. You say, Dave, I don't know about that, Dave. That's a big idea, Dave. I'm going to send you an email, Dave. I love emails. I may not read them for a couple weeks. Sometimes I take email vacations. If you haven't gotten a response, email again. I sometimes need email vacations. (laughs) It's because I just, I get overwhelmed. But if you don't, let me just tell you you're struggling with this, I think Jesus actually helps us. When asked, what, hey, rabbi, this is in another gospel, what is the greatest commandment? Let's throw that up on the screen. This is his answer. Jesus said this. The greatest commandment is this. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Theophilia. This is the greatest and first commandment. The greatest and first. There's an order to this. And second is like, is like it. It flows out of it. It's kind of like it. Which is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that includes the poor. So Jesus has told us philanthropy not flowing from Theophilia We've got it backwards. So if you've already sent the email, just send a, okay. I'll talk to Jesus about this. Both are important, but the order is so important. And Mary gets the order right. (laughs) You see? She pours out all of her heart and all of her soul and all of her strength and her mind and her most expensive gifts, her first fruit she gives to the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus says, No greater love have I seen than this. You will be remembered through the generations for your gift. Judas, on the other hand, we remember him for something very different. Okay. So this kind of talk is the exact kind of talk that gets Jesus killed. (laughs) Okay. Saying things like this in a religious context like it was, to to sort of say he's worth a year's wages of perfume spent on him over and above the poor, in in the Jewish community, they would, like, these are the kind of things that they didn't like. And so the religious leaders seek to kill him. Death threats over and over again. And so something very important is happening here when Mary anoints him as the new king and proclaims him as king and then we'll see him triumphal entry into the city as king when this happens the only natural next step when this happens in any society any country, any world when somebody steps onto the scene and declares I'm the new king what always happens? battle lines must be drawn that's exactly what happens here Jesus says, my time is now, the battle line is drawn, yes, I am the new king. He's sort of been deflecting that for a while, maybe running from the death threats. Now he's going to look, the battle line, it's drawn, and he's going to look it in the face, and he's going to march on the city. Yes, I am the new king. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And so as Jesus is is anointed by Mary as king, Jesus makes sure she knows The anointing that you've given is not quite what you think. This is an anointing unto death. And so let's look at that. Jesus said, leave her alone, for she has kept it, this perfume, this nard, for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. Then it says, a large cloud of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came out, not on account of him only, but also to see Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, too as well as Jesus, because so many people were deserting them and believing in Jesus. See? The battle lines are drawn. The king has revealed himself, and now people are deserting the army of the Pharisees and going to the army of Jesus, and they said, we can't have this, we must fight now. And Jesus knows that his death is imminent, and Jesus knows, too, that he came to die for the nation of Israel, and not just them, but for all nations and for all peoples. And so this phenomenon of a new king arriving on the scene. It's not new. And Jesus knows that death is inevitable. He knows that people are going to try to stop him, just like Herod tried to stop him when he was at the nativity of his birth. Now the Jewish leaders are going to try to stop him at the nativity of his death. And Jesus, this is the crazy part, Jesus steps right into it. Jesus knows that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he knows that when anyone starts losing authority, what they will do is they will kill that which is taking their authority. That's human nature. That's the fall. That's Cain and Abel. And so Jesus knows, and he steps straight into it. That's the crazy part of this story. So it's not new that when people who are hungry for power start losing their power, they want to fight and kill to keep it. That's not new. That happens all over the world, all over history. 
But what's crazy is that Jesus, knowing that this is about to happen, marches straight for Jerusalem without an army, without a weapon, riding on a donkey. That's what's crazy. So Jesus is fully aware that this scene, this party that's happening, is in the nativity of his death. And he says, and the celebration that's going on is totally perfect. Wait, what? what What do you mean this is a perfect party? This is a perfect party and a perfect gift. You're celebrating my death. That's what's crazy about the gospel. That's the thing that you've never heard before in any show, movie, story that you've ever read. That when the battle drives are long, the battle lines are drawn, the king of one army just gives himself as a ransom and loses the battle. That's what's crazy about the gospel. Just like, let's throw a party. Mary is anointing me for my burial, and I'm going to march right in and hand myself into the enemy army. Wait, what? Why? Jesus didn't come to win this battle, he came to win the war. And he says, the only way to win the war is if I am lifted up and glorified in my death. That's what's crazy about the gospel. That's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's like no other kingdom you've ever heard of. This is your first time hearing about the kingdom of Jesus. It's that kind of kingdom where the king gives himself as a ransom for the rest of his people. Some people don't like that kingdom. It's typically the other kings of the world. Wait, if we're changing the game here and we got to be the ones giving ourselves, let's get rid of the king that's saying that's what a real king looks like. What kind of king is this? We have a baby in a manger. We've got officials from foreign countries coming and worshiping. What kind of king is that? We have Jesus throwing a party for his own death and giving himself as the ransom to save his people. What kind of king is that? Same king. It's an upside-down king. But actually, the upside-down is the right-side-up. The whole world is upside-down. He's turning it right-side-up. That's the gospel. Who else throws a party for his death? There's one king. You wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. That's why we follow this king. And he proved that he won the war by rising from the dead on the third day. He's not a fool. The gift he gave of his own life is not foolish. It's not out of place. It's not, there's no doubt in that because he rose from the dead and he said, they thought they won. I gave my life, we lost this battle, but three days later I won the war. And now we are in a, a, scene of of thousands of years of what we call the mopping up duty. The Allies won the war on D-Day and then it took them about, I don't know, another year and a half, two years to do the mop up duty. We're in mop up duty, but the war is won because he gave his life for this battle as a ransom for many. We celebrate his death. I, I want you to see how crazy it is that today, 2,000 years later, Billions of people across this globe are gathering to celebrate the death of Jesus. Just like Mary was rightly celebrating his death then, today we come and we're going to sing about his body broken, his blood poured out, the gift of his very life given for us. We're doing what Mary did then, the greatest party ever. (laughs) We're celebrating his death because we are also celebrating his resurrection. It's wild, guys. Christmas is a weird season. For the next 23 days, people will gather around celebrating a baby who was born in a trough, a carpenter from Nazareth, Nazareth, who ended up dying on a Roman cross. People will celebrate that and gather. Like, it's wild. It started right here at the Advent of his death, the coming of his death. The picture, the nativity of his death is coming, but his death is something we celebrate just like Mary, anointing him for his burial so that we can celebrate him in his resurrection. Are you excited? If not, 
Again, listen a second time on 1.5 speed during your week. One final thought. Verse 3 says this. And, and the band, get ready, because you're about to come up. Actually, just start coming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the final thought is this. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Look at this. So the house, the whole house, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When we give our best gifts, our whole self, everything we have to give, we give to Jesus. It fills the whole house with the fragrance of Christ, with the fragrance of heaven. No, no one could escape it. And that is my prayer for this church, this house of worship. When somebody walks in here and they see us giving our greatest gifts, our fullest gifts, we're not withholding anything, that they would experience the aroma of heaven, the aroma of Christ, the fullness of his victory, that the war is won, that the death has been paid, that forgiveness of sin happens here, that there is new resurrected life that flows from this place because they can see it in us, because our worship is full and clear, we don't hold anything back, and that they, whether they know it or not, are experiencing heaven and earth. That's what I want for here, and I hope you have it in your homes too. When you go from this place, when you invite people over to your house during this holiday season, that they would experience the aroma of Christ because in your house, not just this house, but in your home where you go from here, will be filled with the praise of Jesus, that you are giving him the first fruits of your time and your gifts and your praise, that your house is filled so that when people walk in, whether they like the smell or not, they're like, it smells different in here. What are you cooking? What kind of nard are you using around here? And they want to know more about Jesus. That's my hope for our church. That's my hope for your house. May that be a house of prayer and praise unto the King. Let's pray.